0: The Man Who Will Not Forget by Joseph Blank. Believing passionately that justice should know no limits in time or distance, Simon Wiesenthal has ferreted out more than 1,000 Nazi war criminals. As the Chief Judge recapitulated the defendant's crimes, the two outwardly most impassive listeners in the crowded courtroom in Dusseldorf, West Germany, were the accused former ss holpstein Fuhrer Franz Stangl and Simon Wiesenthal, a private citizen who had tracked Stangl for 20 years and was responsible for bringing him to justice. At the opening of the trial, seven months previously, the prosecutor had declared, "Stangl is the highest-ranking official of a death camp that West Germany had ever been able to try. In his two-and-a-half-hour review on that cold December 22, 1970, The judge said, The defendant, as commandant of the Treblinka extermination camp in Poland, supervised the murder of at least 400,000 men, women and children. The judge's words gave new life to an ugly piece of history that many people wanted to forget. Stangle, who had defended himself with, I only did my duty, stood at attention to hear his sentence, Life imprisonment. Weisenthal, A bulky man of a hundred kilograms with grey, thinning hair, a grey moustache, and bright alert eyes, strode quickly from the courtroom. All his movements give an impression of power, of urgency, as if there isn't enough time for him to do what he wants to do. In the corridor he stopped by a waste paper bin, opened his wallet, and extracted a picture of Stangle that was tucked between photographs of his wife and daughter. He had kept it as a constant reminder of Stangl's innocent victims. Now, silently, Weisenthal tore up the picture. He felt no elation. Stangl's sentence means nothing to me. It was purely symbolic. No punishment could be equated with the enormity of the crime. The important thing was that guilt had been established and justice done. Starting the trip back to his three-room documentation centre in Vienna, Weisenthal had already forgotten the trial, he still had more than 300 active cases of wanted mass murderers in various stages of investigation. His files contained thousands of other names that might never get any attention. It's a job I'll never finish, he reflected recently. I'm now 64. I'll just go on with the work, one way or another, until I stop breathing. Since May 1945, when he was freed from the Mauthausen, Austria concentration camp by the Allied forces, Wiesenthal has been gathering evidence against the men and women responsible for the Nazi extermination of six million Jews and several million Gentiles during World War II. He has located more than 1,000 of these criminals, an achievement that makes him unique as a sleuth. And he has done this, except for a year immediately after the war when he worked for US war crimes investigators. As a private citizen, without any legal authority financed only by small contributions from individuals across the world and his earnings from lectures and writing. Wiesenthal works basically alone. In the beginning he had a staff of 30 volunteers and poorly paid part-time assistants. Gradually, these men and women left for the peace of normal careers and family life. Even today, however, a message from Weisenthor will set a nun in Australia, a rabbi in South Africa or a lawyer in New York on the track of a wanted man. Simon Weisenthal never wanted to give his life to this grimmest of all detective work. Before the war, he was a young, successful architect in Lwów, Poland. After he and his wife were reunited in late 1945, each had believed the other was dead. They talked about their lives. "'Everybody in our families has been killed,' Weisenthal told his wife. "'I can't go back to my profession.' How can I build houses until I've done what I can to see that people are safe in them? I can't forget the millions who were murdered. I am alive. Being alive puts a debt on me. Justice must be done. Wiesenthal was initially motivated by revenge, but he soon realised that his passion was destructive and futile. He tried to explain it to a Jewish partisan leader who wanted his files so that we can exterminate them as they exterminated us. No, no, Wiesenthal replied. We will not be like them. We will use the law. If you kill them, the world will never learn what they did. There must be an accounting. There must be a testimony in court, a record for history. Though Wiesenthal expostulates passionately against every such call for for eye-for-an-eye vengeance, when a death camp survivor weeps over horrors he has witnessed, Wiesenthal weeps too and that man's or woman's experience becomes part of his experience. At times, he says, it is hard for me to separate in my mind what happened to me and what happened to others. This soul-deep empathy has sustained him in his lonely work, but it has also driven him to illness and terrible insomnia. At night, scenes of Nazi atrocities used to kaleidoscope endlessly through his mind. Visiting a doctor, he was told, I can't do anything for you. You need distraction from your work, a hobby. Weisenthal had always been idly interested in the stamps on his mail that came from scores of countries, so he took up stamp collecting, he's now an expert philatelist, and learnt to lose himself in the art and history of stamps. It was a hobby that was to prove inadvertently instrumental in locating Adolf Eichmann, who directed Hitler's whole campaign to annihilate the Jews. Weisenthal's patient search for this criminal began in 1946. Although Eichmann's personal dossiers had been destroyed on the eve of Germany's defeat, there were no fingerprints, no photographs. Sleuthing unearthed Mrs Eichmann, living under her maiden name, and her three children. Neighbours understood that she had divorced Eichmann. Weisenthal didn't believe it. She was rigidly suspicious of all strangers, and to him this wariness meant that she was in some kind of contact with her husband. Then, in 1948, he learned that she had requested the courts to declare her husband officially dead. To support her claim, she presented an affidavit from Carl Lucas of the Czechoslovakian Ministry of Agriculture, who swore that he had seen Eichmann dead in Prague on April 30, 1945. I was sure that Eichmann had plotted this move, Wisenthal recalls. If he were declared legally dead, all governments would quit their search for him and he would be free. Weisenthal and a few of his part-time volunteers leapt into action. Within two weeks, they had proof that Lucas was married to one of Mrs Eichmann's sisters. They also produced sworn statements from an SS officer and other witnesses who had seen Eichmann alive after April 30. The court promptly threw out Mrs Eichmann's petition. Eichmann remained wanted. Although two pre-war photographs of Eichmann turned up, the hunt was at a dead end. Then, at Easter 1952, Wiesenthal lost his only contact with his quarry. Mrs Eichmann and her children had vanished. She had been issued a passport under her maiden name. Eichmann felt safe enough to have his family join him, Weizenthor figured. One evening, eighteen months later, Wiesenthal was discussing stamps with a fellow collector. A beautiful stamp just came from Argentina on a letter from an old acquaintance of mine, the man mentioned. He's a former Wehrmacht officer now training Argentine troops, talks about meeting people from Germany. Then he read the letter aloud. Weisenthal was stunned by the words. This awful swine Eichmann who ordered the Jews about. He lives near Buenos Aires. The Eichmann case was alive. The very next day, Weisenthal sent this information, together with copies of the old photographs, to the Jewish World Congress in New York and the Israeli consulate in Vienna. In late 1959, the Israeli government wrote and told him that it had located Mrs Eichmann and her three children, living with a German named Ricardo Clement in Buenos Aires. Two Israeli agents visited Wiesenthal to review the history of the case. Clement has to be Eichmann, Wiesenthal told them. There's no other reason why Mrs Eichmann would leave her home here and sneak away with the children to Buenos Aires. We must be certain. We can't make a mistake in identification. We need a picture more recent than those old shots you sent us." A few months later, Wiesenthal read that Eichmann's father had died, and he recalled the early years of his search when he would frequently pursue tips about Eichmann's presence, only to have the man always turn out to be Otto, one of Eichmann's four brothers. The resemblance between the two must have been striking. Wiesenthal found the Eichmann family burial plot in Linz, Austria and carefully examined the terrain for 100 metres around it. Then he travelled to Vienna, where he hired two photographers and told them, I need pictures of everybody attending this funeral, but you must not be seen. He sketched possible hiding places for them. Five hours after the ceremony, Weisenthal studied blown-up images of the brothers' faces. They very strongly resembled one another, and the pre-war photographs of Eichmann. Later, Armed with a magnifying glass, he pointed out to Israeli agents the similar head and facial characteristics. Let your imagination age Eichmann in accordance with the way his brothers look today, especially this one, Otto, Weisenthal instructed the agents. What you see in your mind's eye is probably a very good likeness of this Ricardo Clement. On May 23, 1960, Eichmann was arraigned in Israel. From Jerusalem, Weisenthal received a telegram, Congratulations on your excellent work. Tried and convicted, Eichmann was hanged on May 31, 1962. Wiesenthal never can anticipate the course of a pursuit or how he will find the break that cracks a case. His only lead on Anton Feringer, a sadistic guard in the Plaszow concentration camp in Poland, was that he reportedly came from northern Austria. While checking wartime newspapers for information in a library one day, Weisenthal overheard two genealogical experts discussing family trees. A few days later the conversation popped into his consciousness, and he sought out a genealogist to ask, is there any particular place in Upper Austria where there is a cluster of families by the name of Feringer? Within 48 hours, the expert reported, several Feringer families live in the Krems Valley between Kirchdorf and Mickeldorf. When an aide found an Anton Feringer living in Kirchdorf Weisenthal instructed a photographer, go to Kirchdorf, pretend you're a tourist, take lots of pictures, but get me a photograph of this Anton Feringer. The man turned out to be the Feringer. He was later convicted. On several occasions, Weisenthal had been spurred by a note, a phone call or a casual street meeting. This kind of happenstance produced the Hermine Braunsteiner case. Weisenthal was in a restaurant in Tel Aviv in April 1964 when a woman recognised him. In considerable agitation, she blurted out, I was at the Majdanek concentration camp in Poland. There was a guard there named Hermine Braunsteiner who used a vicious dog and a lead-weighted whip on women prisoners. She must be made to answer for her crimes. Braunsteiner was a name new to him, and he held little hope of finding out anything about her. But legal records showed that 15 years earlier, Braunsteiner had been tried and sentenced to three years in prison, for torturing female inmates at the Ravensbrück concentration camp in Germany. She had been acquitted, however, of charges involving her service at Majdanek, a death camp where more than 100,000 perished. Weisenthal then called on his worldwide network of friends. He obtained incriminating statements about Braunsteiner's actions at Majdanek from survivors in Poland, Israel and Yugoslavia. He picked up her trail at the prison where she was released, and followed her through Austria to Germany, where she had met and married an American construction worker. In 1963 she had obtained US citizenship and was now in New York. Knowing that she could never have acquired citizenship without denying that she had been convicted of a crime, Weisenthal informed the US government, which is now trying to deport her as an undesirable alien. As has happened frequently in Austria and Germany, Many neighbours are sympathetic to the accused, saying, she's a quiet person who never bothers anybody. Her husband exclaimed in resentment, didn't you ever hear the expression, let the dead rest? For Weisenthal, the dead can never rest until justice is done, and neither can he. That's why he keeps scratching for information about Martin Bormann, Hitler's chief advisor, who Weisenthal is convinced escaped to South America That's why Franz Stangl was finally convicted after a twenty-year chase. Stangl had been arrested at the end of the war, but escaped and vanished with his wife and three daughters. No break came until February 22, 1964, when a shabby, shuffling, middle-aged man appeared at Wiesenthal's office. He said, I was a rank-and-filer with the Gestapo during the war. I read an article in the paper about you the other day, and you said that Franz Stangl was wanted for war crimes. I know where he is. You'll have to pay for the information. They finally agreed on $6,000 if the information led to an arrest. The tip, that Stengel worked at the Volkswagen plant in Sao Paulo, Brazil, proved correct. He was leading a pleasant, inconspicuous life in Sao Paulo and owned a house, two cars and several guns. A relative had informed him of the newspaper story mentioning his name, the same article that had brought in the Gestapo man. Stengel wasn't worried. What could a powerless private citizen, sitting in an office some 10,000 kilometres away, do to him? Besides, Brazil had never been cooperative in efforts to track down Nazis. He was safe. Locating Stengel, verifying his identity and finally having him imprisoned in West Germany took Wiesenthal three years of patient, cautious, skillful undercover work. Secrecy was all important, Wiesenthal explained obtain the cooperation of Brazil, but limit knowledge of our plans to the smallest possible number of people. In the past, deliberate bureaucratic leaks had enabled wanted men to escape. The plan worked, and when Wiesenthal was informed of the arrest by telegram, he felt the excitement of triumph, not for any personal achievement, but for the fact that the capture proved that justice knows no limits in time or distance. Subsequently, the Justice Departments of both West Germany and Austria prevailed on Brazil to extradite Stengel. Each arrest or trial greatly increases his usually heavy load of mail. Some of it is vaguely addressed, Simon Weisenthal, Office of Humanity, Vienna. Or, the Dirty Jew, Weisenthal, Austria. There are checks, congratulations, new information, pleas to find certain war criminals, and, always, threats. The latter make him wary, but never frighten him. In fact, they bolster his dedication. Threats indicate to me that criminals at large know they are being sought, he reflects. I simply have a moral obligation to keep after these men. They must know that they are still held accountable, and none of them at this moment knows whether or not justice is just a step behind him. Editor's note. Simon Wiesenthal died in his sleep at age 96 in Vienna in September 2005 and was buried in Herzliya, Israel. The Simon Wiesenthal Center in Los Angeles is named in his honor. Former concentration guard Hermine Braunsteiner was extradited to Germany and sentenced to life imprisonment in 1981. She was released on health grounds in 1996 before her death three years later. For more RD talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Reader's Digest Australia. Narration by Zoe Mernier. Sound production by Ricky Price.